0: Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present multiplicity of their voices and wishes to break overdue cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East. Season 5 is a collaboration between Musawa and Women of the Middle East podcast. As we will be discussing Musawa's latest book, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriage, Towards Egalitarian Ethics and Laws, published by One World Academic in December of 2022. My name is Amal Malki. I'm a feminist, scholar, and an educator. This is Women of the Middle East podcast. Hello, and welcome to Season 5 of Women of the Middle East podcast. This season is dedicated to the groundbreaking book, Justice and Beauty in Muslim Marriage. In this episode, we go through Section 2 of the book, Lessons from the Prophet. This section is made up of three chapters. The authors of these interrelated chapters tap into the prophetic teachings, proposing a new paradigm for looking at contemporary spousal relationships based on justice and equality in Muslim families. In addition to reading these teachings in relation to the context we are living in and forming our contemporary realities. The first chapter in this section forwards Prophet Muhammad and Khadija's marriage as the ideal archetype of Muslim marriages. The second chapter supports it with hadith uh, reports and the third section applies Quranic ethics to interpret these hadiths. I'm delighted to be chatting today with the authors of the first chapter Reclaiming Khadija and Muhammad's marriage as an Islamic paradigm towards a new history of the Muslim present. Today we have with us Dr. Sara Abadni and Dr. Shadab Rahmatou. Lovely to have you both. Thank you. I would like to begin by asking both of you about your role uh, and contribution to this complex, yet important project. OK, I
1: can I can start. So I think what really spoke to us about Khadija radiallahu anha's and uh, Prophet Muhammad's marriage was that it spoke to our own realities. Um we relate to each other as equals. Uh, we met each other while doing our PhDs. Sarah is about four years older than me. So she was finishing her PhD when I started mine and she always wanted to to Jordan um, and so I moved to Jordan for love uh, and uh, I moved there for nine years. So this for us was a historical relationship that we could relate to. And that's really what got the ball rolling and enticed us to learn more about that history.
0: Sarah, what do you think? What was uh, the most that attracted you to this project, besides what Shadab of course, said? I
2: mean, I think the, um, the problem is that in a lot of Muslim societies, and uh, is that there we have this kind of very traditional, we call it traditional, we call it Islamic model, where um, you, you know, men are told we can't get married until, they are able to provide. Um, uh, there's this idea that you should marry somebody who's older than you, the woman. And there's this kind of very hierarchical setting. And then, actually, if we think about it in terms of Islam, we see that that is not a reality at all. We also have taboo against kind of uh, people remarrying, people, you know, we have a taboo against divorce. And we, when we look at the early Islamic period, we see that most of the Sahaba were married constantly. I mean they all married each other. And we don't know this. So when we think about these taboos, in fact, they're actually very Western taboos and they actually have nothing very, very little to do with our, with our Sunni um, and our Islamic heritage, we really wanted to question that perception because especially in societies that claim to be Islamic, when these perceptions actually have very little, very few roots in Islamic history.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and this is exactly what you do in your chapter. Now, your focus on hadith is a shift in methodology, right? From previous studies of Islamic feminists, where many have avoided engaging with hadith um, and instead grounded their um, uh, argument on the Quran itself. How and when did this shift take place in your, um, in
2: your opinion? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, early Muslim feminists have basically said, look, We have a reality. And in this reality, we have so-called laws that we think are based on Islam. And actually, when you look at them, they are the laws of man. And I'm saying man, as in men, right? Uh, Mostly fuqaha, and these fuqaha, when they have spoken, when they have written, have not necessarily gone back to the Quran or to the Hadith. That has been one of the main kind of critiques from Muslim feminists to say, actually, why should we trust the work certain men at a certain time we can go back to the quran and the quran is is just and so a lot of work has been done around that there have been critiques of certain hadith of, because they were written down 200 years later uh, under some circumstances and there has been a lot of again critique of the way that these hadith have been written down at the way that certain hadith were actually in direct contradiction to the quran but i think that we I mean as Muslims, we still we still respect the ahadith, and there is actually quite a bit in there um, that is very helpful. And when it does not contradict the Quran, I think that we should look at them. But and the and the, and the important thing is that when those ahadith, and this is something we say in the chapter, that under Jordanian personal status law, which is supposedly quote unquote based on Sharia. Prophet Muhammad and Khadija, if they had lived today, if Khadija's guardian had said, "I don't want to get them, I don't want them to marry because they are not compatible financially," they could have, he could have avoided their marriage. So what does that say about that you know, understanding that we have of Sharia? When even according to the Sunnah that everyone agrees on, uh, it it. So I think that the spirit of what the Muslim feminists have done, which is basically say wait, so what are we saying? Um, who has actually said this? And let us go back to the most important things, which is, of course, the Quran and the divine source. But then also look at, we can also look at other sources, and when again, when they don't contradict the Quran, I think we should absolutely look at them.
1: And just to add on to that, um, to clarify, what we're doing is looking at the Sirah, right? We're looking at the prophetic biography, and not Hadith per se, Abdul so, Qadir is looking at Hadith, so we're looking at Prophetic narratives from Ibn Ishaq, uh, but also Ibn Sa'ad and the Tabak'at literature. We're looking at um, Ibn Kathir, Abu Ja'far al Um And so we're looking at that literature. And the idea is not to shift away from the Qur'an and focus on post-Qur'anic texts, extra-Qur'anic texts, but rather to build on what the first generation of feminists did in their rereading of the Qur'an in the light of gender justice and to explore other textual traditions, in this case, the Sirah. In other cases, hadith, Islamic law, but also uh, the mystical tradition. And the idea is to really understand that if we want to change realities on the ground, we have to engage all of these traditions within a Quranic framework because these traditions hold legitimacy amongst Muslim communities on the
0: ground. You use the example of Khadija and Prophet's uh, relationship to deconstruct the dominant narrative and uh, histories of Islamic marriage and reconstruct one that is based on justice, love and equality, and specifically focusing on two snapshots from their marriage. Can you tell us more about those two examples? Yeah, so
1: what's really interesting is in this history, we have these two snapshots first of the marriage and second of Khadija's presence during the first Quranic revelations. And I think that's a real challenge because you have to reconstruct a history based on just two snapshots. And yet even those two snapshots tell us so much about a profoundly non-heteronic relationship. Um, And so just to give you a a taste, the teaser of the first snapshot, what we have is a woman who is very successful, Ibn Sa'd in his biographical dictionary of early Muslim women says that Khadija's caravan was the equivalent of the entire caravan of the Quraysh. We have someone who brought three children into her marriage with Muhammad, who was in two previous marriages. One marriage died, another marriage uh, they were divorced, and she was the one who proposed to the Prophet. The Prophet was actually the passive partner in this. She approached him and in Biographical literature from Aubrey and Edmonds. We actually have the wording of her proposal. So what we are seeing is something very different from what we are exposed to today, in which the man is the active partner, the powerful player, and the woman is passive, acted upon. So this is all to say that just from these two small snapshots, we see so much that points to very alternative configurations of a marital couple coming together.
2: And also, what is interesting is that when you look at the sources. Of the Sira sources, we see that the early sources actually have no problem with this. They don't have a problem with the fact that Khadija was married before, they don't have a problem with the fact that she had children, they don't have a ma- problem with the fact that she was the one who proposed. It's today's sources that want to erase that. They want her to be a virgin, they want her They want her to stop working. So there's, you know, Razwi, uh, a contemporary scholar that has this whole kind of spiel about how she kind of after they married she stopped and she put her whole energy and her creative energy to the household and making it nice so it's a very kind of bourgeois understanding of you know, the father who works and the mother who stays at home and it's and of course it's none of that is in the early sources so so what we see is actually the problem is with today's modern sensibilities. It is our modernity that is so conservative that for us, this is like, oh my God, what did she propose to she was, she was still working. She's the one who actually supported. And of course, again, this is deeply connected to how our personal status laws, our family laws have been conceptualized. It's the whole concept of the family laws that is based on law and, law and law. So obedience and, and maintenance is based on the fact women live in the husband's house and that the husbands provide, and therefore women have to obey. I mean, the second snapshot is about early revelation. So how how the Prophet received um, the Qur'an and how he felt at that time. And he was actually extremely, and we know this, again, as children, we learn this in person. You know, we learn how he was scared, he ran to Khadija he said, zamilini Zamilini, cover me up, cover me up. And we know all that. We know she was the first Muslim the first muslima, but right? we know that, um, but we don't think about it. We don't think about how actually it was marriage to such a strong person who enabled the prophet to realize he was a prophet. And and it was within that marriage that, that was able to, to blossom and to, 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 to develop. We also don't know as much uh, that actually was extremely, extremely. It wasn't just at the beginning that he was. It was a little, long period when he was extremely worried about losing his mind, about being, you know, being crazy. That he actually contemplated his own life. And again, the early sources speak about that. Of course, for us to say that, it almost felt, you know felt like we were religious, saying something, but. So there was also vulnerability in the prophet, and I think this is important too, and again, it's important from our current, I want to say capitalist structure where all of us, men and women, have to be the perfect, almost God, not even human, because we cannot make mistakes. You know, we have to be perfect, we have to be perfect father, provider, we have to do so much that we actually can't. And actually, when we go back to the Quran and to the Sunnah, we see that the prophets were humans. They made mistakes. That is what they. That is what humanity means, and that vulnerability is okay. It's okay to be vulnerable, but in in modern masculinity terms, it's not okay to be vulnerable. And I think that's very important to to learn that and to say no, no, saying no to this kind of um, forced perfection. That is that breaks us. That nobody expects from us as humans, and actually being vulnerable, being vulnerable, of course, to God. But also being vulnerable in marriage, and that marriage allows for this vulnerability, and allows for two people to support each other, in, not in their perfection, not because they are maintaining each other and they're, I don't know, providing whatever you know, a sexual favor. It is something that is a it is a vulnerable relationship, and. It allows for us to be human and it strengthens us and allows us to be stronger. But it's okay to be vulnerable in it.
1: And the sources are very clear that the Prophet was profoundly vulnerable. Like in the biography of Aqtabari, the Prophet contemplates throwing himself over the crag, over the mountain, because he doesn't want to be called a madman by his beloved tribe. So, of course, we can't verify if he was suicidal or not, but we know two things. Number one, there are narratives of it in authoritative biographical sources. And number two, the historians don't have a problem with it. They don't feel the need to compensate and say, no, but the Prophet was a real man. They, they don't feel the need to say that. They're comfortable with that. And Khadija, when he went up to her and said, Zambilini, Zambilini, she was there to catch him when he fell. She went up to Warqa ibn Nawfal, her Christian cousin, who knew the scriptures very well to verify See. She had the famous narrative of sit on my lap to verify is this an angel or is this a jinn, right? And what's very important is a lot of folks critique Khadija by saying yeah, but Khadija represents the pre-Islamic period. And Aisha represents the Islamic period. And our response to them is this. Their life was a 25-year relationship. But Allah gave us two snapshots. A snapshot of their marriage and a snapshot of the Quranic revelation, the first Quranic revelation, I think that there's great wisdom, great hikmah in that. That of the two snapshots, one of them fundamentally connects Khadija to the Quranic revelation. And I think that really should shake then how we understand the revelation.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And it's beautiful. Khadija and Muhammad's relationship not only challenges the notion of a male provider and dependent uh, wife, but offers an alternative model for a marital uh, relationship built on mutual care, support, and love, as you said. Uh, but Dr. Shadab, your work counteracts and invalidates an established discourse on marriage based on men's priority and females' inferiority. This says volumes about historical facts and framings, right? And you hear reclaim a sideline or maybe intentionally excluded. Past that would have had a different power dynamic relation between men and women within, you know, the family uh, construct. Are we able to rewrite history?
1: That's a great question. So I'll sort of give you the response, and then let like, Dr. Sara jump in. So One of the methods that we're using is called a history of the present. And this comes from very important philosopher Michel Foucault. And he basically argues a history of the present is a way of critiquing the present by a way of exploring alternative paths. So the idea is that history writing, in and of itself, is a political project. We are presented with a narrative of history that legitimates the status quo today. And so history can be something very subversive and empowering and liberating because when we look through the sources, we can see very different pasts that in turn will not only challenge the present status quo, but show us different ways of reconfiguring that status quo in a way that is more inclusive different voices and experiences and that's what we're trying to do with this history this is a history of the present because it's a history that allows us to not only critique the present but to change that present as well
2: and this is important it's important to also recognize history is political what we remember how we remember it is political so when we say oh look at the romans they were always patriarchal the the father could kill anyone in his school this is right as the father of the family, to kill the slaves, to kill the children, to kill the children. That was his right. And so, of course, what does that mean when we remember this history? And we don't remember histories that were matriarchal or egalitarian. But what it does is it says that when we have a patriarchal present, that is natural, that is normal. It's always patriarchal and we stay patriarchal at the core of remembering history as a political act. And to recognize that they, even we, what the status quo, we're doing political too, but to kind of say that when we get to yes, we are looking at histories that were silenced, and we're looking at those and saying, once we kind of bring them into the future, how does our understanding of today change? What does that mean for today? If we, if it's all of kind sudden mean all these other histories that we never knew about, how can we be different today in our present? And so that's. That's kind of the methodology that we use, and it's extremely important uh, in order to fight current injustice, injustice to kind of say, well, let's recognize the politics in these methods that are seen as apolitical.
0: Definitely. But what needs to be done to mainstream this paradigm and replace the old one that has been a part of not only the legal systems in our part of the world, but also the popular memory of, of Muslims around the world? What What do you think we could do? I mean, I think one thing is, it. This is this story. is not uh, it's, it's
2: not like this hidden little story. Every child grows up learning about Khadija. We know we as Muslims, we love her. We know her. We, we, this, the problem is that that has not then changed into a paradigm, into a norm, into something that we can look at. So I think in a, in one way, it's actually not that hard. I keep emphasizing this understanding that this is. Hegemonic. What I mean with hegemonic is that it's, it's it's it is what everyone believes in, but it's, the roots are actually Western modern modernity and conservative modernity. So it is about the bourgeois family and the story of provider, and which, by the way, even in Western societies was never the case. It's just it's just an image that was given. The majority of women globally have always worked. The majority of workers have always been women. So this idea of a woman who's been taken care of is actually the experience of a minority of women across history.
1: So just to add on to that, it's very important for us to make these arguments for gender equality uh, and egalitarian relationships from within an Islamic framework. And when we do that by excavating Islamic history, we legitimate what we're saying. We can't be written off as, oh, this is just UN project or a western secular project. No, when we make a statement about divorce not being a taboo and we say, actually, if you look at not only Khadija, but if you look at almost all of the prophet's wives, with the exception of Aisha, they all had prior relationships and prior marriages. And many of the um, Salama, Um Habiba came into those relationships to the Prophet, peace be upon him, with children. Aisha once boasted that she was the only wife of the Prophet who was a virgin. So it means she was the exception, she wasn't the norm. And when we challenge these types of taboos, I mean, Khadija throughout her life, her kunya was Um Hind, the first child that she had with her first husband, and Um Hind remained as her through her 25-year marriage to the Prophet. When we make these arguments challenging taboo of divorced women from that type of Muslim history, who
2: can challenge you, right? Anyone who takes that that religion seriously can't really challenge you. And especially that now, of course, a lot of injustice is being done against women who are either divorced or widows, who if they want to remarry, they will have to give up their children. Their children cannot be with them in a new household. So you as a woman are being told, you know, either you you stay unmarried or you lose your children. And that's a terrible situation to put, to put women. And this is the predicament of thousands of women across the Muslim world. There is no
0: taboo in Islam around divorce. Dr. Sarah, you've researched actually Muslim family laws. And um, as you know, in the MENA region, the legal system, um, uh, and personal status laws in specific continue to be major obstacles uh, towards women's rights. What are examples, I know you've mentioned a couple of examples now, but what are other examples in which current family laws or practices contradict the model uh, of marriage proposed by Khadija and Muhammad, uh, despite you know claims that those uh, legal um, uh, models are inspired by the Quran?
2: So I think the most important one is uh, this whole idea that I already mentioned of uh, qalam. So uh, the idea that men are providers, have to be providers, and that uh, and therefore women uh, has to be tarab, which means that men can say you're not allowed to work, Uh, you're you know you're not allowed to leave the house, etc. So this is the most important thing because it's actually at the core. It's at the core of Muslim family law, and that's extremely problematic because it immediately creates a hierarchical relationship that is based on provision. So this is I think the most important thing that we need to remember that this whole idea of being a provider and because you're a provider, you are in charge. And it's not in the Quran either. It's not, you know, that because you provide it means you can you can control. But it's also not in the Sunnah of course. And I think that's the most important thing because it's the root of the of the inequality within marriage.
0: Definitely. I think al-Qawama and the guardianship al-Wilayah are the two basic components. All marriages in Islam have been uh, built upon. And, And this type of research really provides an alternative model, alternative narrative, that again, I go back and say, we need to work on mainstreaming it. If we cannot replace the old one, let's offer this as an alternative. Now, this question is for both. You speak of how certain masculinities, understandings of what it means to be a man, at a certain time and place are valued more than other uh, types and forms. And how uh, these masculinities themselves, as well as their um, valuation, changes over time and context. Then you forward a new framework, which is feminist masculinity. I'm very, very interested in that. How do you conceptualize the concept of feminist masculinity?
1: So I think, first of all, the idea is to understand masculinity as something that is productive right? Not something that is, oh, this is polemical, this is a problem, let's get rid of it. Masculinity is a reality. The question is, how can we reshape it so that it can actually not only exist within, but support an egalitarian relationship? We used a very straightforward definition, what it means to be a man in a particular time, in a particular place. And so accenting the context of the definition is important because it means that masculinity is not one thing. It's shaped by a particular social setting. And therefore, it can be reshaped for different social settings. And when we look at the type of masculinity that was not only cultivated, but flourished in this 25-year monogamous marriage, I think we can see something that can be very inspirational and harmonious for 21st century Muslim marriages in which both the husband and the wife are working. And in many cases, the wife is the primary earner and in many cases, the sole earner of the family if we look at the historical records we don't see any examples of marital discord between Muhammad and Khadija in that time on the contrary after Khadija passed away during at the end of the meccan boycott in am husan in the year of sorrow the prophet continuously praised Khadija for everything she had done for the community to the extent that his later wives it became a point of friction because he kept on talking about her in such glowing ways right So. What we can see, what we can glean from the sources, is someone who is very comfortable in that marriage. And I think that's very important because he did not feel threatened. He did not feel insecure because of the economic strength of his wife, the social capital of his wife. On the contrary, He saw it as a win-win, a win for her and a win for him. So it wasn't me versus you. It was something much more reciprocal. It was us. It was a couple. It was a community. And if we can take that seriously as a part of the sunnah, I think that's going to shape, help a lot of marital issues in which a man can no longer be a man. With the cost of living in today's society, hegemonic masculinity is a fiction. No man can live up to that and just hand out uh, you know, the money in that, doesn't work that way. So in many ways, feminist masculinity, a masculinity that supports egalitarian relationships, is more in touch with the real realities on the ground, in which both have to provide in order for the household to actually survive.
2: But it's, I think, this and again, this goes back to our current value system, where basically we are saying, of course, as Muslims, we are guilty of this. We, as Muslims, imagine our prophet to be a rich man. So we have a very classist understanding of Islam. So we are told in school, when we fast in Ramadan, to feel with the poor. So what? The so Muslims are rich. And so the rich are Muslims. And so all the millions of poor Muslims, who are, what, who are they fasting for? To feel with themselves? So we have a very rich, central point of view. And of course, current masculinity is like this. You, and we see it in our, you know, in Hollywood movies and Bollywood, movies, all these movies where you are a man if you are rich, and you know we see how people treat you know workers, they, you know look down on them, and but also in the family. And I think actually if you look at uh, this the story, it's about provision to enable. And this is of course again this is not a mainstream. This is a very extremely rich example I mean, an uh, example of the, the wealth that uh, Khadija Anha had is extreme right so but she did not use that wealth to become some she did she wasn't good because she was rich and she didn't use that money to to kind of put herself on top and say I'm the boss I decide and you no it actually enabled marriage to be to be a good marriage but then also that, that means that your value doesn't derive from that and that you have to help. Because of course this we're not saying we're not saying oh you know men should be providers women should be providers no nobody actually realistically can be in current situations both are working very young, barely able to provide but it's taking it's divorcing provision from value and from saying not you don't get value just because you're able to provide uh, and in the family together you are able to to, to, to create something is divorced from how much you create in terms of money.
1: And just to quickly add on to that, going back to what Dr. Sada was saying about vulnerability, right? The prophet was vulnerable, and the classical historians have no problem with that. There are various Uh, narratives that talk about the Prophet not being able to pay for the mahar, for the dowry, that Jibra'il comes down with jewels for the mahar, and none of the pre-modern scholars have a problem with that, whereas I have read modern biographies of the Prophet by select Muslims who are uncomfortable with that, they cover that up, and they say things along the lines of the Prophet paid X number of she-camels in the dowry, when none of the classical sources show that, right? So it's also it's not just about material wealth; it's about vulnerability. Again, the marriage, the proposal, the prophet was clearly a very shy person. We imagine the, the prophet as a caliph, but he but he wasn't a caliph. He was a very soft-spoken person. And I think the prophet can be a window to understand the earlier prophet and to reread the earlier prophet in the light of that non-hegemonic masculinity. We know that Prophet Musa was very uncomfortable going up to Pharaoh because he had a lisp when he spoke, right? That is not hegemonic by any standard, and that's why he asked Allah to open the knot in his tongue, right? Again, when we situate this non-hegemonic masculinity within an Islamic framework, we not only critique hegemonic masculinity, but we legitimate other ways of being a man that is healthier in a broader community.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. Now, the other two chapters in this section of the book, Build on Yours, um, can uh, you outline the, the threads of connection and your reflection on how these threads solidify uh, the argument of the alternative paradigm you're for, uh, forwarding? I mean, I think, I mean, if we start with um, Abu qadirs chapter in, in the sense
2: that the, absolutely. I mean, what what can we do? How what is important to people, and how can they use? And this is something every Muslim can do. Every every one of us can go to the Quran and through the Quran, reading the Quran as a direct relationship to God. We can, you know, we we Allah, we we have the tools, and so it is an extremely important tool, and it's an extremely important tool. And actually, despite the way that we read. You know, the very patriarchal way we have imposed in our There is still gender egalitarian, a lot of gender egalitarian uh, messaging in those forces that are, you know, that that we can use. And I think with Amin's chapter. How do we do this then? I think that the three chapters work together and say, this is one example, uh, but you know, ethics is very important. Like where, where this ethics is there. It's in the Quran, we believe in it, but we have normalized, and this is of course injustice. The way it works is that you normalize it by other people. You make, you believe that everyone is equal, but yet you have no problem speaking down to your, you know, to your uh, housekeeper at home. These ethics are extremely important. Bringing these ethics back and saying, no, you cannot justify injustice, keeping that there and doing that. A lot of people do this through the Quran, but also use the rich sources that we have uh, through the Seerah and the Hadith.
1: The Quran is fundamental. It is Kalam Allah, it is understood as the word of Allah. And so it does mm-hmm. have to be prioritized. But the text also has a lot of silences and it is very broad in its discourse. Can you paint a painting with the Qur'an? I don't know. I think you can have the foundations of a painting. I think you can have the foundational sketch that you need. But to participate in the process of painting, you need something more granular and detailed. And I think the specificity of seerah narratives, the hadith, the legal angles of fiqh, I think this allows us to collectively come together and to really paint something that can be different, that can speak to our reality and can still be true to the Qur'an and to Allah, right? So I think that the hadith offers us something very, very specific. And again, it allows us to speak to what really matters to a lot of Muslims on the ground. As much as Muslims love the Qur'an, the hadith, the fiqh, all part of it, you know, so I think it has to be engaged if we change realities on the ground. Just to add one more point, it's important not to essentialize the literature, that one camp is oh, it is and that's the way, and we're saying, no, it is feminist, and that's the way. What we have in the literature is a collection of contesting, even contradictory voices. So the question we're asking, why is one strand, one voice elevated to the level of the paradigm and we don't even know about the other. So it's really a battle over memory, our past, as Muslims, as a community. And the idea is to say, look, if another strand speaks to our realities in a better way, let's elevate that strand so that we can be true to the message of the Qur'an, to the original sketch, right? So it allows us to paint a picture that contests another painting that excludes so many painters.
0: We all need to collectively... Uh, promote such an alternative uh, model, one that is indeed based on the prophet's uh, peace be upon him life, uh, that shows him in the right light uh, that promotes justice, equality, Uh, love, um, dignity. As Dr. Asara said, you know, this is something that we all learn really early on in our lives, this uh, marriage, this very unique marriage, but it's it's not still yet, it's not part of how we perceive marriages in Islam, unfortunately, as if it's the uh, exception rather than the norm. So how do we make that the norm? We need to revisit, I think, our educational curricular but also, we need to um, mainstream it through media, through culture. Um, and, and again, you leave me with, with many ideas. Um, is there anything else you want to say to conclude this discussion?
1: I just want to add that, um, and this goes back to how you began the interview. You asked us about the first generation of feminist scholars in Islam who are focusing on the Quran. And we're branching out into the Sunnah in general and the seerah, the prophetic biography literature in particular, but we're also doing something that's very similar to what the first generation was doing. first generation was not just focusing on the Qur'an. They were saying that tafsir has been dominated by men. And as a result of that, men's experiences have been foregrounded at the expense of women's experiences, challenges, and issues. And we're saying the exact same thing that women need to take their rightful place in interpreting not only the Quran but the Sunnah in general and the prophetic biography in particular and as long as men continue to dominate the interpretation of sira, the interpretation of the law the interpretation of school the interpretation of the mystical tradition we will not have egalitarian paradigms and models that we can try to emulate and live up to And so, a big part of this is saying we need to have women take their rightful place in intellectual circles, in mosque spaces, so that they not only participate, but that they lead discussions and lead critical reflection and meaning-making about the history of our faith. And that is what a history of the present is about. Because when women do that, the present will not only be deconstructed, but we can reconstruct it together, as feminist women and feminist men, to produce a more just reality in the Muslim
2: community. And here it's very important to also kind of see women, not as see differences between women. And the you know, work of uh, Dr. Kamil Madood comes to mind here when she says, you know, how do you read the story of Haja, who, who as Arabs, we believe is our mother, uh, as single mother who is abandoned by her husband in the middle of a desert, and how does that kind of go to kind of single mothers today and how do you read that and so having these different voices and so not just saying oh we also need women we also need women who are not rich women educated women how are their experiences how is them reading what do they think is important that that is what it means to say islam is for all times and spaces and people it means that we can all it speaks to us but we can also speak at our experience in our diversity allows us to capture something that's very
0: important to be able to hear that. Thank you. This is Women of the Middle East Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Season 5. To stay up to date with Women of the Middle East Podcast, you can subscribe and don't forget to rate us. If you would like to contact me directly, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter or via email. This is Women of the Middle East Podcast.